The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and if you're listening and you would like to join this show and, and speak to my guest, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so by dialing 888 329-3306. That's 888-329-3306. And always be sure to check out our website for all things related to the show. You can find us at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Uh, I'm very excited this afternoon to have a very special guest in the studio with me. Um, she's right across the table, which I'm thrilled for that. And her name is Erin Friday. Erin is the CFO of Leaf Pharmaceuticals and also founder and CEO of Mainline Accounting, Accounting excuse me, which is uh, right here in the Philadelphia area. Erin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sue. I'm very happy to be here. I, uh, I was reading your bio over the weekend and preparing for the show, and, and the first thing that I noticed was just the enormous amount of activities and things that you're involved in. It, w it was absolutely unbelievable. Um, and, and we're going to get to a few of them this afternoon, but I want to start with your years growing up in Philadelphia. Um, we have a couple of uh, similarities. We're, we're both from uh, the same alma mater, Villanova University, and I noticed you went to Raven Hill Academy, which is in East Falls, Philadelphia, and I actually have an aunt who attended that school as well. Um, but I did notice that you were the oldest of three, two, two, girls, two girls, right? Two girls. And I find that to be kind of a common theme with women who are on my show. Uh, being the oldest tends to put you into a leadership role, I guess, early on. Um, but talk for a little bit about those years growing up and um, a little bit about your uh, your childhood and uh, the activities that you did as a young girl. Okay. Um, well, so I grew up, um, and I wasn't on this earth very long before my sister arrived. She was a little less than two years younger than I am. And uh, my parents will tell you that that was a defining moment in my youth. Um, it was all about me up until that point. Yeah. And then uh, Robin arrived. And I'm not too sure that I was thrilled um, to have a sister initially. Um, however, she became a best friend. She became a playmate. Um, we shared a room and were very different. I always would... Um, be organizing, you know, the game shelf by, I don't think I was alphabetizing, but, but I was making sure <laughs> that things... That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I was making sure things were lined up, and uh, she was more of a free spirit. Um, mm. And ironically, when we went off to college, and I know we'll get to that, but when I was looking at mathematics as my major, she was looking at English as her major, mm. so um, very different. But we would have a lot of late night conversations, um, probably well after we should have gone to bed, um, <laughs> and so forth. Um, we attended pretty much the same schools. I think that it was probably difficult for her. It was easy for me because there weren't expectations when I came along. I could just be who I wanted to be and 
I think she was sometimes in the shadow of being my sister. Mm. You know, when she would get to the teachers, we went to um, Catholic schools, and you're there for a long time with the same community. And um, so whether it was families or teachers and administration, I think the expectation then for the, the second and, and future kids coming up the pipeline is always, you know, you set that bar mm, with the first yeah, one. To be the same somehow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, to be the same, or, or I, I sometimes felt that she felt a lot of pressure. She, I, I still to this day think that she's smarter than I am, but she also definitely worked harder. Okay. Um, and yeah. I think part of that was, was coming along and um, having expectations from teachers that she was going to be like me or she was going to work like I worked and so forth. Yeah. We were talking a few minutes before the show about um, one of the influences, I think, in your life was obviously uh, from your mom mm -hmm. who um, came to the U.S. from Budapest. Yes. Right? At the age of 14, yes. which is a very you know poignant time for a young girl speaking no English mm -hmm. and that kind of set the tone for you in just um, noticing what mom and dad had to go through to to make a life for themselves um, I guess what the first question I have is what kind of conversations did your mom have with you growing up about that experience that she had well so it's interesting that you should say that because I have always had a thirst for knowledge about her life and what drove her and um, how she got to get through all the challenges that she did when she came here um, but she's a very private person mm -hmm. um, and so we didn't spend a lot of time talking about that um, on my bucket list is learning Hungarian which I do from time to time um, I'm a Hungarian citizen because of my relationship with my mother and um, have always wanted to learn more about that heritage, have had several trips to Hungary, but they didn't come along until much later. Our first trip to uh, Hungary to meet relatives and so forth wasn't until I was starting high school. Okay. And <clears throat> I think part of the answer she would give me too is that wasn't something that she and my dad had shared as far as, the, there was another um, girl I went to Notre Dame with whose parents were both Hungarian. And so they spoke Hungarian in the home, and both mom and dad had the Hungarian heritage. On my dad's side, he, we're Irish, and I think it was his grandparents that came um, from Ireland. Um, so there wasn't that shared sort of Hungarian heritage and history. Also, I think a lot of it was, um, it was very traumatic at the time. Um, she and her older sister came during the Hungarian Revolution. Um, and um, were flown by the U.S. as refugees to the United States. Wow. And then uh, she came up to stay with uh, Sister Ann Joseph, who was an Assumption nun at Ravenhill Academy, okay. which is how that connection started. Mm -hmm. And um, just amazing to me, uh, both from when I was that age and my daughter, who's slightly older than that now, and thinking about what a different experience um, to have had at that age compared to what your typical 14 or 15 year old would go through. And she actually went on to um, receive a degree in college as well? Yes, yeah, so yeah. Um, following her graduation where she was, so she came to Ravenhill not speaking a word of English, ended up president of um, her of the school her senior year, um, was uh, then went on to St. Joe's University, mm -hmm. got her bachelor's degree there at night while working, um, then got a fellowship to the University of Penn where she got her master's and went on to be a doctoral candidate, which is where wow. she met my dad. Okay. Um, 
and yeah, it's just really, she should be the woman to watch here. <laughs> <laughs> we should have brought her in. Exactly. Yeah, we should have. Well, when she came, who did she live with? She, so she and uh, my Aunt Liz lived with Sister Anne. Ravenhill was a oh, boarding school. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That is a remarkable story. And I'm sure there's lots of stories within that. Absolutely. That, those bits and pieces of your mom's life. Um, you know, when I was looking over your your background as well, it was it's clear that you were academically gifted from a young age um you skipped the fifth grade yeah tell me about that how that affected you socially um terribly actually that was very traumatic um although if you ask if i would do it again um in a heartbeat i would say yes um because academically the right place for me to be was was learning at a a different level at that point Mm -hmm. um my takeaway from that however was there are, and I've gotten involved in a lot of gifted education stuff actually that I didn't even put down there um, because both of my boys are great accelerated as well. Um, but I learned that there's um, better ways to do it. Um, and at, at the time, that was really the only option, so I'm not critiquing anybody's choices. And um, one of the, the good things about it was that my parents and the school involved me in making that decision. Okay. at the time, which I thought was amazing that they would consult with, you know, a fourth grader. Yeah. Um, however, it was going to impact me and required a lot of work and, and so forth. Um, it was very difficult once I moved from the fourth to the sixth grade, because again, in a Catholic school, you're with these families for lots of years. Right. And they knew me as this kid who was the bro- like friends with their brother or sister. Yes. So I was always like the baby in the, in the group up until um, eighth grade. And um, that's when I I learned that I I think some of that was I projected that onto myself. Um, And so when I got to talk to those folks um, later on, and even we've had a couple class reunions, um, that I think those folks looked at me very differently than I looked at myself. Mm. Um, But by the time eighth grade rolled around, I felt, and eighth grade is also a defining moment when you've spent a lot of years together, Mm -hmm. that no matter what all your differences are, you're a family, you come together, and you appreciate each other's strengths and weaknesses, um, and, and you really just bond together because you know you're going on to the next thing, probably not with. I was the only one from St. Matthias that went to the Academy of Notre Dame after that. So, Do you think it was that um, when you talk, I, I too, I went to uh, Catholic school, mm-hmm. grade school, and it is, it's like it's family, and yep. it's almost like these are your brothers and sisters yes. and cousins. Yes. So if you're the smart girl in the class, yes. sometimes there is pushback for that, which there shouldn't be. But um, and so your perception was, you obviously are so, you're an explorer and you love to learn, and you were ready to, you know, to move on a little faster than perhaps some of your girlfriends. So was there that feeling of maybe jealousy, or you know, that you somehow thought you were better? even though you didn't. Right. Um, no, I didn't. I, I don't think it was anything of um, like an elitist kind of thing, M- more of like a social awkwardness, I suppose. Um, I felt a lot more comfortable with kids that were a bunch older than I was, as opposed to my same age peers. Yeah. Okay. Because the kinds of things that I was interested in or the conversations I wanted to have weren't necessarily what maybe your typical preteen or teenage girl was was interested in. Um, But that tends to iron out over time. Um, And I will say that my experience at Notre Dame allowed me to more fully um, embrace my strengths and get confident with what I was doing. And um, yeah. 
Notre Dame um, All Girls Academy. All Girls yes, Academy. Yes, it is. So you, um, in high school, this was some of your activities. Um, you were an athlete. You played soccer. Um, you were involved in campus ministry. Um, you were on the newspaper, um, musicals you were involved in, speech and debate. These are only a few of the activities. So I'm reading that and I'm thinking, my goodness, you know, usually we find something we enjoy and, and we pursue that at the time. But were you at that time exploring and trying to find what your interests were? Or were you someone that just literally had to be involved in everything? Uh, probably some combination of both. Uh, I have always enjoyed learning um, different things. I've enjoyed meeting different people. And uh, as you're suggesting, those groups ended up being very different groups altogether. Right. Um, you had your athletes and you had your theater people and then you had your academic people. And um, even though in smaller schools you have the ability to do a lot of different things, generally people find their passion. Mm -hmm. um, so part of it could have been exploratory mm -hmm. uh, in trying different things, but I also found that I enjoyed a variety of things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I did the soccer. I've loved soccer and basketball my whole life. Theater is fabulous. I love being in theater as well as watching theater. Um, I'm good at numbers, but I also like writing. Um, and it seems like a darn shame to have to, like, cut out something. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's very unusual, I think, to be strong in all areas of the brain. Really. Yeah, it's... I'm not sure I'm strong in all areas, but, but I, can, I can usually. That covers pretty much every area. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. No, I think that must have been, you know, well, exciting and, you know, kept you active and out of trouble. I always talk about yes. what, how great ath uh, athletics is for young girls. Um, well, and I think athletics, um, and, and you see how that segues into a lot of the stuff that I'm doing now, just um, team sports in general. Um, one of the things that um, I was sad about was in high school, um, given, and my parents worked so hard, um, but they were unable to pick me up after school every day so that, like, the gym teacher wanted me to be on the basketball team. And my dad would always take me um, in the neighborhood, and we'd shoot baskets, just the two of us, and, um, and he was a basketball coach back in the day, okay. too, so back with uh, Jack Kraft from uh, Villanova. And so I loved basketball, um, wanted to play, and the, and the gym teacher thought, hey, you'd be perfect on the team or whatever, and uh, couldn't make couldn't make it work to be able to do that but mm. found you know I was able to be in a rec league I've definitely coached a lot of basketball so I found a way to um, stay in love with it because I think it's so much more than just the sport it right is. Yes. I mean people need to from a health standpoint it keeps you physically active from a life lesson standpoint you learn there's no greater skill than being able to work with other people as a team or right. common goal. Right. And yep. you don't have yep. to love everybody, but you appreciate everyone's strengths. Um, and you work on how you don't judge people and their different approaches, um, but you embrace what they're bringing to the table. Yeah. I, I also find it to be now as a, you know, um, a fan of a lot of the local sports teams, such a wonderful distraction from the seriousness of life. Yes. Right? Yeah. Whether you're playing or, or, you know, you're a spectator, I just think it's a wonderful. But it's also about um, learning to win and lose. Yeah, right. Um, I remember I was coaching this um, uh, girls team in the Radnor League here, 
and we had a great group of girls and and most of the time my focus besides basketball fundamentals um, is fun right the idea of sports you're playing it should be play especially in in a rec league and uh, for the final game we were going up against this undefeated team and we had already lost to them once in the season and so I got my girls together and I said you know what our focus should be on demonstrating what we've learned all season, right? That we've that we've improved. So I want you to go out there and I want you to show me that something I taught you <laughs> that you learned that you could come away with and I'll consider this a win, regardless of don't worry about the score. And we got ourselves pumped up, we had a little cheer, it was all about the attitude. Well, don't and and, and I believe that the other team kind of went in there overconfident because it, they were undefeated. How old are these girls? So these girls, oh gosh, um, probably seventh grade. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so we get all excited. We're actually winning at the end of the first quarter. My team comes (laughs) off. They're ecstatic. The enthusiasm is just contagious. And the other team mentally started to crumble because they had never learned how to lose, how to be down, how to, um, there's this song from High School Musical, Get Your Head in the Game. I play that sometimes during practice, right, to get us pumped up. It's a great song. Right. Um, (laughs) It's a good life song. Right. And so to to keep their head in the game, and I will tell you that we won that game at the end of the first quarter. We went on to actually win the whole dang game. You did? That's awesome. But we won it at that moment. Because the second quarter came, and the other team had girls that were crying, had girls that were injured, had, they were started to blame each other, like wow. as a group. Yeah. Uh, and at the end of the day, yes, it was. I mean, my team was over the moon that they won, but I, it was more important that over the course of the year they learned to lose too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, as we were shaking hands with this team at the very end, some of them wouldn't even shake our hands. Mm. And I remember saying to the coach as a sidebar later that if he could circle back with them once all the emotion of this whole event had died down, to give them that, to give his team that takeaway about how to do it gracefully and graciously. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that is, it's one of the best lessons in in sports, really, losing. Um, So... You became um, a track and field official at the age of 12. <laughs> How did that come about? <laughs> well, that was because I got dragged around to an awful lot of um, track and field events, as well as back at that time in the Philadelphia area, running was just, there were marathons everywhere, half marathons everywhere. Uh, and my um, parents were track and field coaches, um, as well as officials. And so whether it was my sister and I holding the finish line at track meets at Ursinus, um, I just, you know, I was going and I was attending anyway. So um, I remember some of the, the older gentlemen who were officials, my early mentors, if you will, yeah. buying me my first stopwatch to be able to use at meets and so forth. So getting certified at that point was just a matter of mastering the rule book, taking a, a test and, and putting down all the meets that you'd worked. So easy enough. <laughs> So you were officially an official at yes. age 12. Yep. That's awesome. Um, we happened to share an alma mater. I mentioned that at the top of the show. I did not, however, receive a presidential scholarship <laughs> as you did. And you went on to receive three degrees, a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics, a Bachelor of Arts in Honors, which I want to ask you what, what okay. exactly that is, and a Bachelor of Science in Accountancy. Um 
and you participated in way too many activities for me to name. <laughs> so my question to you is, where does this drive come from in you to, to participate in so much in life? Uh, so, and I think we had talked about maybe briefly before the show too, in terms of um, growing up um, and watching what my parents, um, how education took them from um, coming here speaking no English to um, being able to afford private education for their kids and um, just really give them a leg up. I, I was taught one, never to waste. So mm -hmm. everything was precious. I, I still think we have stuff in my parents' basement. That, <laughs> um, that, so don't waste the physical things, right? right? Don't waste the don't physical waste things. Don't waste, don't waste money. Don't waste food. We had to, I remember having to stay at dinner and finish everything that was on our plate because of the starving people in the rest of the world. Right. So They could literally say that to you where a lot of parents <laughs> say that. Yes. Yeah. Um, so never to waste that, um, yeah. but also never to waste opportunities. And I was very fortunate to be at Notre Dame on an academic scholarship. Um, and so when I was there, I thought, you know, I look at it like the school's investing in you, right? They're giving some of the dollars that they're bringing in in revenue, and they're investing it in you. And my two best friends, actually, from Notre Dame were also scholarship uh, recipients and have uh, should be future women to watch. They <laughs> went on to do amazing things as well. And then when Villanova... Uh, gave me the presidential scholarship and invested full tuition in, in me, um, I felt the need to seize the opportunity to use my time while I was there to take advantage of everything. Mm. Um, so what drives me is, is the not wanting to waste the opportunity, um, but also that, that love of learning I think growing up, and, and maybe because my parents were both teachers too, they were very natural at this, that both my sister and I had a natural curiosity for things. Mm -hmm. And good teachers, whether they're officially teachers by title or um, just are people in your life, um, will encourage that curiosity. That is, that's what drives innovation. That's what drives creativity. Um, that's what drives any kind of future benefit to the world mm -hmm. is um, kids are, and this was a Maria Montessori philosophy too, that kids are born wanting to learn. And, and you have this amazing, when you're first, the first three years of your life, like you're literally programmed to learn everything, to learn to walk, to learn to talk. To, um, so if you're given the right encouragement and you're given the right um, ability and, and environment in which to ask questions and explore things. I think that learning is self-directed. You just need, like in Montessori, you have a coach, and this is my coaching philosophy too. My players are going to be out there to play the game. And, um, and, and, and with my mainline accounting team too, you're there to kind of give direction, but um, you want people to learn and, and find that inner motivation to, to be curious and learn. Um, learning can be fun. It, it, you know, unfortunately, with some of the constructs with um, education and so forth, everyone doesn't get that opportunity to continue to love it. Um, or I, I'm actually 
excited about with technology and so forth that learning can be more individualized yes. because the more you can tap into an individual's curiosity and love of learning they can take off and and you don't have to be someone's um, parent you don't have to be their teacher you could even just be their friend um, and find a way to help them find that that light and that curiosity yeah. and that love of learning so I don't think I have anything that other people don't have well it, that's a good statement for for my question because I guess what I'm thinking is um, I love that you talked about you know when we're born and we're young that's why they always say you know babies are sponges because mm -hmm. really we're, we're just programmed to learn sometimes I think we get distracted boys and girls from the excitement of learning because of all the the distractions of life, the nonsense, the social um, issues and all of that. And so would you say that um, I think there's probably a number of things that keep us focused on learning, and one is security. Mm -hmm. So growing up, what was it about your upbringing that allowed you to feel safe to explore and keep yourself on the right path and not be distracted by all of the social um, things that go on? I guess I, I was fortunate to have two parents that were very involved um, and gave us a lot of attention. Um, and um, I, even family, like we didn't really have a lot of money to do a lot of really um, big trips, but the trips that we went on, uh, we had a chance to ask questions and explore and learn. And, and even, um, even just the time that my parents took, whether it was doing homework or shooting baskets with me, and just being there um, to answer questions, um, being there to learn what someone's interests are. And then, okay, so this, this I'm not very super proud of this, but I am an Elvis Presley fan. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I'm excited for this segue. <laughs> Which was um, something that probably terribly disappointed my parents. However... <laughs> Um, I loved his music. I loved um, the fact he had some quotes about what made, and, and I related to the fact that even with all his fame and fortune and whatever, he kind of felt lonely. And I think mm -hmm. growing up um, in grade school, I, I felt a lot of loneliness. Um, so I related to that aspect. Plus, I just love rock and roll music, any kind of music. Um, but we went on a, a road trip to go visit relatives in New Orleans. And don't you know that as much as they poo-pooed my um, having this um, fascination, <laughs> they made it a point to stop at Graceland in Tennessee, in Memphis, Tennessee, and made my sister, uh, Robin, a shout-out to you. Thank you for doing this. But she had no interest Go with, in right, going. Right. No interest whatsoever. <laughs> went on the tour of Graceland with me. Um, and, uh, and it meant to me that they may not have agreed with what I was interested in, liked what I was interested in, but they um, found a way to respect that and they cared about your interests. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I love that. Yeah. And and I think probably as coaches and teachers, your your parents, they were just always in that mode, right? Correct. Of teaching and 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 uh, bringing things to you. So that's really wonderful. Um, so. You know, we were talking about how busy you are, uh, how busy you were back then, but you're still the same way today. Yes. And you are also a mother and a wife, and you have three children. Yeah. So without using the phrase work-life balance, <laughs> <laughs> I will ask you that you can't have a life that full and not have moments of stress because Correct. there's only so much we can manage in a day. 
what's your mantra? What is your, you know, um, philosophy? What your mantra, I'll say, for getting through those moments where some days things just aren't working out the way we want. Um, well, to quote Elizabeth Gilbert, eat, pray, love. Yeah. <laughs> so when I'm very stressed, I yeah. eat. Okay. <laughs> um, I find comfort foods, um, but uh, I eat. Um, I do a lot of praying. Um, every Sunday I get uh, focused at Mass, and even if the homily doesn't uh, give me something I can take away, then I kind of look for further meaning in, in uh, what's happening around me during that hour. Um, and then just um, loving, loving. So as long as um, you operate from a, a point of love, it's not that you're not going to make mistakes, um, but at least you had the right intention, for heaven's sake. So Yeah, um, that's right. I also, there was something I came across recently because, um, I, I, yeah, work-life balance is a misnomer. It is. Um, I, I liken it to um, the plate spinners, the people that have the plates on the really tall sticks, and they're spinning, and this one starts to slow down. So you go over there, and you wind that one up, and your, your idea is it's not really juggling like juggling balls, but you're making sure those plates don't hit the ground. Yeah. Right? Um, and at some point, you do need to make a decision as to how many sticks and plates you're going to have um, that you're going to manage mm-hmm. and still manage to um, bring something of value, right, to each of those places in your life. So um, I've, I have an awful lot of plates spinning at the moment, um, but <laughs> I have found um, that when I pray for signs and I look and I'm aware of signs, that I tend to get some really good answers. Mm. Um, and one of them, it was a long story how I ended up getting it that I won't bore your listeners with, but um, was Oprah Winfrey's Soul Sundays. Amazing um, inspiration um, podcast. I had never really, um, those for first podcast I ever listened to. Um, but my takeaway is there are three things that if you can focus on those three things, you can have success and happiness in whatever you do. And the first is gratitude. So wake up every morning and I think of three things to start off my day that I am grateful for, even if it's just the fact that I woke up. Mm. Um, because I, I had a friend um, last year who, whose husband didn't wake up. Um, so being grateful for waking up is, is powerful in my mind. So three things I'm grateful for. Then optimism. Mm-hmm. No matter how bad a day, no matter how bad things are, um, it's, it's thinking, it's that hope. Um, and, and especially when things are really bad, things can only get better. That's right. <laughs> so it's almost easier to hope. <laughs> when you're at the top of the game, there's, you know, it's hard to hope for things getting any better. than better. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then the third is forgiveness. Um, and what's really, really, really important about forgiveness um, is forgiving yourself first um, because you can't really forgive others until you forgive yourself. Mm. Um, so um, making mistakes is a learning thing. Um, and, and by no means having these three things, are they easy? Some days they're a real challenge, right? Um, but um, it's okay to make mistakes. You just have to own them. And owning them is um, taking responsibility, um, apologizing, finding ways to remediate if you can, but then learning to forgive yourself for making them and move on with the lesson. Yeah. 
That, those are great, three great things, I think, to, to remind ourselves every day. Um, we're going to take a short break. When okay. we come back, I want to talk a little bit about your career and your profession and some lessons that you learned there. And my kids. And your kids, <laughs> your boys. Hopefully, are they listening or they're in school? Oh, they're in school, but they'll oh. listen afterwards. Okay, very good. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Michael Bertoni, founder and CTO of Philly Tech. I'm throwing the first annual Philly Tech community holiday party at CODA in Rittenhouse Square, Philadelphia on Wednesday, December 13th from 6 to 9 p.m. This party will be a celebration of technology and innovation happening throughout the greater Philadelphia region, and everyone is invited. You'll have the opportunity to learn more about the tech scene in Philly, network and praise our achievements, while giving back to littles within Big Brothers Big Sisters of Philadelphia. 20% of the dollars raised in the event will go towards buying holiday gifts for littles in Big Brothers Big Sisters and putting a big smile on their faces during the holidays. Here's what you can expect at the holiday party. We'll kick off with a live comedy show called Good Joke, Bad Joke, Bingo by comedian Sean Wickens. The first 100 people to arrive go into a drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Enjoy free open bar, free buffet, and DJ from 6 to 9 p.m. Tickets are only $20 on Eventbrite by searching in Philadelphia for first annual Philly Tech Community Holiday Party or going to my website at phillytech.co. Make sure it's phillytech.co. Looking forward to seeing you there. This is Kristen Hillsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more, all available at womentowatch.net and our own website, foleyhillsleygroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at foleyhillsleygroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird & Company, member SIPC. Log on to foleyhillsleygroup.com to learn more. That's F-O-L-E-Y-H-I-L-L-S-L-E-Y group.com. Or call 610-238-6636. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by Aaron Friday, who is the CFO of Leaf Pharmaceuticals and founder and CEO of Mainline Accounting here in Philadelphia. And we had a great conversation the, the first part of the show um, about Aaron's life growing up and 
just how busy she was, and she's continued that today. <laughs> and um, you, you did mention your your boys, and you know we should talk about them a little and bit. And my daughter. And your daughter. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was three boys. No, boy, boy, girl. Boy, boy, girl. Okay, I'm sorry to That's the daughter. Okay. Um, but I also read that having these three beautiful children was not exactly an easy road for you. And uh, I'm sure that there's some life lessons in, in that. Um, you know, you had some medical issues. Yep. Talk about that for a few okay. minutes. And, well, right. So yeah. um, it seems like uh, as much as, yeah, things are a lot of work for me. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, but you just keep going. Exactly. Well, and so you persevere, and um, uh, and I, I de- definitely don't make light of the fact that like everyone who attempts everything and keeps at it will always get it. I, um, but I was very fortunate in in this regard that I love kids. I really wanted to be a mother. Um, I uh, met my husband when I was young for some people that opportunity doesn't happen because they don't find Mm. Prince Charming until much later and so uh, wanted to start a family um, ran into medical issues um, met I will say I met an incredible community uh, of people um, uh, for the six or seven years it took us to um, get our family started Um, heartbreaks I lost um, two babies um, before my oldest son, Colin, uh, one was a boy, one was a girl. Um, and then my middle son was a twin and we lost his twin. And, uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely open about it. We hang Christmas stockings, um, oh. on the mantle for them. Um, and also I have a charm bracelet that my parents gave me with a head for each of my kids. And then I added an angel for each of the three, mm. um, babies that I lost. So, um, I'm a, really a mother of six. Um, but, uh, right. So it was very difficult, um, to get pregnant. And then, uh, I don't know if it's even more difficult it was to stay pregnant. Um, I used to joke that my body said that it could deliver like, uh, a baby around a 22, 24 week size. And so uh, I would go into preterm labor, ended up with cerclages where they're stitching everything shut. You know, oh they put you on bed rest, which, um, the, the company that I worked for was amazing. They loved the fact that it meant I was by the phone when they called because I was controller for a financial planning firm. And um, ordinarily, I was all over the company. Um, it was a smaller company. So operationally, I was very involved dealing with um, every department. And um, so now they could find you. Now, that, to now you. I could answer. <laughs> they knew I exactly where phone. you were. Oh my and gosh. also, I remember the. Uh, office manager saying to me, you know, well, if you were the receptionist, we wouldn't really be able to accommodate you working from home in a bed. But the nature of the career that you chose lent itself very well to um, bed rest. And it kept me occupied. I had my computer. I was amazingly productive while I was (laughs) on bed rest. (laughs) Nothing else to do. Um, So, um, but even after all that, and I remember the doctor giving my husband um, gloves to carry around in the glove compartment because she thought as soon as I got off bed rest, they took the cerclage out, the baby was going to come flying out of me. Oh um, po- I, listen, I, I have such um, admiration for you, but I'm th- your poor husband I as know. well, the fear. Well, there's been a lot of fear along the way, and he's hung in there, God bless him, on a number of occasions. <laughs> so the first was, yes, expecting he was going to have to pull the car over and deliver oh a baby at a God. moment's notice. Just like on TV. Correct. Yeah. Um, ironically... 
um, my due date was like somewhere in early December, mid-December, and I ended up two weeks late. They decided not to induce me on Christmas, so they started um, inducing the next day. And um, when we got to midnight, I remember the doctor coming in and saying, I, I, I honestly can't believe after everything we've been through that I'm going to suggest a C-section to you. <laughs> and at that point, my thought was, you know what? I just, I want to deliver a healthy baby. Yeah. And I honestly don't give a hoot as to how we, right. we get this kid <laughs> out of me. Yeah. So right. whatever you need to do, let's just do it. Yeah. Um, and so my oldest, Colin, was born December 27th, right after midnight. Wow. And as I'm laying there, they um, they handed him to my husband who, who brought him over. And I, I just, I was in love absolutely in love um so much so that i didn't even realize the anesthesia wore off yes in the middle of a c-section so oh when i turned my attention then they needed to go um clean them up and and take them down to the nursery and all that stuff so as soon as i took my attention off the baby um i could feel everything oh my gosh and uh i announced as much to which point it was very surreal the doctor says over my head to the anesthesiologist should we um should we hold up and I was like, yeah, I'm like screaming, yes, I can feel it. Oh my so gosh. They, it was very quick acting. Do? I went from screaming to whatever the anesthesiologist pumped into my thing. I was out cold, oh um, like mid-scream is what my husband said. But short acting because at the very end, um, the doctor commented on this as she's wrapping up and heading out the door. They were transferring me to a, a gurney thing to go to my room. And... Um, she said, you picked your head up off the bed. And I remember the moment, so I was very lucid. And I said, thank you. And she's like, and she was thinking, she's like, after everything we've been through, she came to talk to me about it the next day. And I, she's like, you stuck your head up and you said, thank you. And I was like, well, when? You, in uh, this was in the operating room oh at God. the very end. And I was like, well, yeah, we, you, thank you. You, we, you got my son here. That was the whole point. I'm here. My son's here. And then my other moment of terror for my husband. And, and so babies two and three kind of repeated themselves with this scenario. The same, um, but when I tried to do the VBAC, um, the doctor didn't want to induce because she was afraid there was going to be this, not getting into too much medical detail, there was going to be a rupture and um, uh, we would lose mom and baby. And I looked at my husband and I said, I, re I really need to try this. I need to know that I tried it. I'm, I've, I've considered that I'm not risking things unnecessarily. I'm, I, I, I know what I'm doing, and I just need you to trust me. And he was as white as that sheet of paper in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. And I trusted the doctor, and she was very conservative, and she said, I'll come back at, um, after my meeting unless I get a call ahead of time, and we'll, we'll try it. We'll give you some Pitocin, and we'll try it. So I really felt like I tried it. Um, I did end up with another C-section. Oh, my gosh. Um, after a full day of this is the second the second yeah, one yeah. as induced labor and mm -hmm. so uh, that was because a week earlier I actually went into labor and I was on the way to the hospital at five in the morning contractions whatever five minutes apart and a, a deer jumped off a grassy knoll in front of a cemetery and we swerved the car killed the deer it was not a good omen <laughs> but I remember being so mad going into because then we were on the way to the hospital we called the we were able to keep going to the hospital, but my contractions had stopped because of the adrenaline. And I remember them saying something like, uh, are you okay? And I'm like, yes, I'm fine, but I'm so mad because I was naturally going into labor and this whole thing <laughs> turned into it. Darn it. Stopped. And, oh and then again, gosh. not a good omen with the dead deer. But right. um, Sean was, again, a wonderful blessing. Um, and 
then, so when the third time came around, um, I was not a candidate for a VBAC. At that point, they scheduled a, a C-section for me. It was extremely uneventful. I went in at noon, I think 12-12. Um, my daughter was um, handed to us, and we didn't know what we were having. Um, and I remember the doctor saying, congratulations. And we said, well, what is it? And he said, well, you don't know? And we're like, no. And then there was this long, dramatic pause. Like, are you going to fill us in? <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, my husband's one of five. And everyone got married and, like, had kids in birth order in some strange way. But everybody had one girl. They had two, sometimes three, ultimately ended up, the last one had four boys. Everybody had one girl. And at this point, I had had two boys. So I was feeling a little um, little pressure there to perform. Yeah, to even carry though it's on a, the tradition. It's a, it's a Y chromosome thing, so completely out of my hands. Right. I'm just pointing that out. <laughs> um, but um, you were blessed with um, Shannon on June Shannon. 12th. And, nice Irish um, name. She is, she is amazing, and my boys will tell you that I love her more, and that's so <laughs> untrue. Um, I love them all equally but differently. That's right. And how old, how old is Shannon? So Shannon is 15, going on 30. Right. Um, Sean is 16, and Colin is 19. Okay. Okay. Well, just, you know, just with family obligations, responsibilities alone, you're busy, right? Yes. But let's talk about your your career what i want to make sure we get in is is i want to know what the catalyst was for you to decide to to um start mainline accounting which was in 2007. yeah so um, after and i should say you know after um working in in uh, as an accountant and a cpa for multiple companies coopers and Librand was yes. that your first yep. out of villanova i started as an auditor yeah with most and people Libran. know that company but um just to kind of make sure we talk about, you know, doing that, working for these these corporations, and then mm -hmm. starting your own is completely different. It's it's completely different, but um, I think what's actually a shout out for internships and co-ops, which give people a chance to explore various career fields and so forth. Mm -hmm. I did a little bit of that early in my career, right? I got into Cooper's and Librand, big company, because that's what accounting majors did. Um, and so I interviewed, I picked four, I liked the name, whatever. Um, <laughs> then uh, interviewed, liked the culture, went there. Um, so I got a taste for public accounting. Then I went into private industry, worked for some um, big name companies like a PNC or a New York Life Insurance Company, which were, um, you know, fill out forms in triplicate, et cetera. Um, not really a, an environment for me. Um, smaller company um, where I was for 10 years, where I had my kids, where I got to do lots and lots of different things. But it was one company, one place. Um, and I really enjoyed um, the variety that comes with public accounting. Mm -hmm. um, one thing about most accountants is they're a fairly conservative bunch. Um, they're not typically very entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I don't think I'm too different in that regard. Um, what I will say that's been my catalyst for moving and doing anything in my life is the people in my world um, and their encouragement, their help, their support. Um, I have never made a move without that. Mm. Um, and the move to get started with Mainline Accounting was the firm where I was working. Um, it was a smaller firm. We were a CPA firm and we brought in another partner uh, who was very different um, and we have very different management styles. And I had so many um, clients that saw me unhappy that said, 
you know, you, you know, you really can do this, right? Like you're doing all the work that you would be doing anyway. If it were your own firm, you should think about this. Uh, and so that's that's what I got a kick in the pants. Do you do you think you always knew um, that one day you would have your own? Not at all. Business? My my dream when I was in um, high school was to be on Broadway. Still kind of is. That's <laughs> <laughs> I can give you an opportunity right here today. No, I, I sing better I in groups than solo. Yeah. No, when I saw you sang as as well as everything else, I thought, well, I'll ask her, but I'm not sure. No, and my kids are always embarrassed whenever I'm chaperoning dances or like I can't help but moving to the music. Even when I'm watching my son perform, my middle son has been in a lot of uh, Broadway musicals. I'm the parent that's bopping along in the seat and wants to be like up there next to him learning the dance moves. Totally embarrassing. Exactly. Which is our job. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that, you know, um, we talk about entrepreneurship on the show a lot. And I think that there's a lot of women today starting their own businesses and companies. And, Mm -hmm. you know, what... What comes to mind for you as one of your uh, top bits of advice for someone who perhaps was is today at the place you were where, right. you know, you want to make a move and leave leave a company you've been with and well, do something on your own? It's seeing a need, right? Um, so uh, that's where a lot of it starts. Um, you identify that there's some need in the market, there's some need that people have, um, and you can fill that. Uh, and so... What's really important is that you know what you know and you know what you don't know Mm. and that you get the support for what you don't know um, so that it can be a reality, right? If ultimately your goal is to help people um, in in whatever way you're called to do it, um, you really need to be able to ask for help. And what's amazing to me is how many people are out there and available for help, whether it's like financial things like the Small Business Administration and and so forth, or volunteer organizations or support groups of women or trade organizations or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's an amazing amount of help out there there if you start looking and if you ask for it. That's right. I have have also been, I don't know why I'm always surprised by this, that how many people are willing to mentor? So, so I've made a foray into the pharma industry, and um, apparently there's a recurring theme about my lack of experience in the pharma industry, but um, what I've mitigated that with is doing a lot of research um, on to what makes that industry different, but also reaching out through my network of people and telling them what I'm trying to accomplish how many people have offered to, hey, I know somebody in pharma. I, I've had incredibly accomplished individuals take time out of their schedule to sit and talk with me for an hour to help me get to the next level, mm-hmm. to connect me with people that can help me, that have left the door open to return again and again because of what they say it, it give, it's given them, yeah. my request for help from them. Mm-hmm. I, I, it just... It's a crazy dynamic, but can you tell me? Has it been mostly women or men and it's women? It's been mostly men, and the reason it's been mostly men in the pharma industry is because, uh, unfortunately, women aren't um, represented as much in the C-suite level okay. of pharma. Mm-hmm. Um, it's changing, but it's changing slowly. Um, and part of that, uh, you know, and I question these individuals. Although it's interesting because the one gentleman. Our daughters go together, go to school together at Notre Dame, and there was a, a board member of the school who I was talking to, and she said, "By the way, this other woman that I know, her husband's in pharma." Connected me with the wife who 
who connected me with her husband. So it was through uh, sort of women's networking yeah. um, that brought that about. The the other gentleman was was through um, uh, another uh, gentleman that I know, and um, but I've asked them point blank, like what what is it? Um, some of the answers have been it's an old boys network, mm-hmm. um, and so it's a, it's difficult to break into that. Um, what I do see changing, though, there was a, the Villanova had the leadership summit, uh-huh. and this this time it was about women igniting change. And there was a panel of men that were um, there about how men can help support women. And what all of them had in common was that they had a daughter. That's right. I was at that panel. Yeah. I, yep. I loved that and discussion. I think that's helping to change is gradual. But where where there aren't maybe as many women in those positions now, if some of these gentlemen are helping women like myself come to that level, then alongside my male peers, I can also then further help um, girls who are coming up um, be able to envision themselves in that role. Because I think breaking into an old boys network you need more than just a mentor. You also need to be able to see yourself there. That's right. Right? And that yes. comes with some good education and, and good support networks. But for people who don't have that, then you start developing this group of people that are in those positions. Mm-hmm. And now, okay, there's, like when I started at Cooper's, there was one female partner. I wanted to ask you what the, yeah. Yeah, what and, it, and I couldn't identify then? with her. I'd never met her. There was... The, the one uh, female manager who was amazing to me, who was a Villanova person, who I considered a mentor, and I thought, this is great. I can model my career after someone who's been there, done that. That's right. As soon as she started a family, left to go into assignments, is what they called it, where they, they come to the office and they, they put you out on the assignments, not somebody who was staying in public accounting. Okay. Um, and so all of a sudden I started questioning, well, does that mean you, you can't have a family and, and get to partner mm. level? Like, I sort of lost then what that vision looks like. Mm. Um, but I think the combination of people pulling you up from the top, as well as, like, with starting mainline accounting, people, like, pushing you up from the bottom yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, can get you where you need to go. Well, you know that saying, you can't be what you can't see. And right. that's why, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do this show was to show the you know the real life stories of women who are at certain levels in C-suites and are mothers and wives and are, are doing something else other than the work that they're doing. Tell me what you've learned from uh, working with Leap Pharmaceuticals because this is a company that is involved with uh, the research of cancer drugs yep. and you've had some trips to Africa, yes. right? Um, yes. What have you learned? You know, and it's been a short time. You started in 2017, is yeah. that right? Well, so 20 in 2014, um, they were introduced um, to mainline accounting. Uh, the founder, Dr. Kletney Akiza, uh, was introduced to me through his tax firm, Drucker and Scacchetti. And he was um, getting started, um, didn't want to retire, had lots of great ideas, had pharmaceutical background and wanted to move forward, needed accounting support, um, so contracted with Mainline Accounting to be that outsourced accounting solution. In 2015, as we worked together more closely, asked me to be more of a financial um, consultant in addition to what my firm was doing. Um, for LEAF in 2016 asked me to be director of finance and operations and the company was uh, again growing um, has grown exponentially in 2017 uh, when he asked me to be the chief financial officer 
And one of the very first things I did as CFO was um, take a trip with him and our chief medical officer, Victor Moyo, to uh, Kigali, Rwanda. And I had the honor and privilege of meeting President Paul Kagame and sitting down for him with, for about an hour in the State House and talking to him about our plans. Um, we now have a, a wholly owned subsidiary, Leaf Rwanda, um, that's um, in Rwanda, that's wholly owned by Leaf Pharmaceuticals. Uh, so our team has grown. Um, I have learned tremendously about the industry. Um, I've also learned um, that it's possible to be valuable um, just by not having come from pharma, but bringing a diversity of thought um, to strategy and to operations. And uh, certainly financial stuff is, is, is a similar and common thread across many industries. Yes. So uh, it's taught me a lot about myself and, and how I can um, uh, juggle all that and make sacrifices and... Um, yeah, lots of lots of good internal life lessons. And are you hopeful in what you're seeing in the in the pharma industry uh, around cancer? Uh, so, so uh, Leaf is 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 going to be what it brings to patients is going to be amazing and life changing. That's exciting. That's exciting. Well, listen, we're at the end of the show, Aaron. I thank you so much. What what a great life story you have. Thank you. And I would I'm going to leave the uh, the listeners with the fact that I find you incredibly adaptable and resilient. Thank you. <laughs> My goodness. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Be sure to check out our website at womentowatch.net for all things related to the show and to see our amazing lineup. Have a great week. Thank you.